Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Today on the show, we have the lovely Mary Beth Span Mank. Mary Beth is a former elementary school teacher and freelance writer. She has authored over 45 teacher resource books and over 75 readers for children. She is also a puppeteer and a storyteller. She is the founder of Learning with Puppets, an online educational membership site for parents and teachers of young children. So why is she on We Don't Die radio show? Well, Two and a half years ago, her husband Paul passed into the spirit world from pancreatic cancer. Since then, she has looked for evidence of the afterlife, and what she has found is amazing. In fact, Mary Beth is a co-author of a forthcoming book on the subject and will be a speaker at the upcoming Afterlife Symposium, with the title of her talk being Romance Across the Veil. Mary Beth has teamed up with author William Murray, whose wife passed from cancer. Together, they have created a Facebook group and have regular online group meetings for those wishing to have a trans-dimensional romance with their loves. Her website is learningwithpuppets.com. Mary Beth Spanmank, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Sandra, thank you so much for having me on your show. I am so honored. I feel the same. (laughs) I'm honored for many reasons because you have so many stellar stars on your show, so many fabulous voices, but also I'm honored because you're someone who everyone admires. I have to say I've been in the afterlife community for a little while now, for a few years now, and I have never heard a disparaging word about Sandra Champlain. Everyone loves you because you you are sincere and warm and, and humorous and supportive and understanding and I'm just so very jazzed to be on your show. Very honored. Oh, I feel the I same also- <laughs> way. Let me just interrupt you for a second, because I know you are a real person with a real story. And even though ne- neither one of us are, you know, superstar celebrities in the world, we've both experienced our own grief and we're here to share. And I think that's what makes our stories real, believable, and that we can make a difference with others. So I feel the same way about you. Yes, well, thank you so much. Like many of your listeners who come to you, uh, I think most people, I would venture, most people come to learning about the afterlife and about are intrigued by the we don't die message because they have, quote unquote, lost someone Mm -hmm. to death. And I, my, my own parents have passed and a very dear aunt of mine passed. And I was sad when they did, but nothing prepared me for the grief I felt when my husband passed. I felt like a train hit me or a wrecking ball hit me. I ju- I've never felt that level of pain. So my story with my husband, Paul, goes like this. I was born in Dublin, Ireland and adopted into a family in Buffalo, New York. I grew up in Buffalo. And when I was in high school, I met Paul and I was instantly smitten. We just got along so well. And we started dating. And on our very first date, he said to me, Mary Beth, I, this is 1970, to give you an idea of the Mm -hmm. time frame. Uh, He said to me, Mary Beth, I really like you. And uh, and I want to go steady with you, which just made my heart flutter. 
and I want to exchange high school rings, which is something we did back in the day. But he said, I'm only 17 and I'm expecting to probably go away to college, which was really unheard of in our little industrial city of Buffalo, New York. Nobody went away to college. But Paul was very smart. He was our high school valedictorian. So he was smart and funny and adorable. And I was just smitten. And he said to me, I just don't want you to get hung up on me too much. And I said, okay. <laughs> right. And I proceeded to completely fall in love with him. Yes. And I wasn't really even with him all that long. I wasn't, it was only really several months. But in that time, we just laughed our heads off. We had the best time. And then one day he came to me, it, he walked me home from school and he held out his hand and in his hand was my high school ring, which was an indication I, you know, I'm giving this back to you. Oh, um, no. You know, this is it for us. And I gave him back his ring. And I don't know where this came from, Sandra, really and truly. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. Of course, I sobbed and I was so upset and so sad and hugged him and everything. And I watched him. I went, he went home and I looked out my window and saw him walking away, literally and figuratively. And I thought to myself, I'm not upset. I'm not angry with him. I don't harbor any ill will against him because. If you love someone unconditionally, you want for them what they want for themselves. And if Paul wanted to date other people, even though I wanted to just be with him, I had to allow him his path. Mm -hmm. I had to let him go with love. And that's what I did. I let him go with love. And we lived, we were neighborhood kids. So I would still see him at school. And, and then we graduated and I went to the local university and he did as well. And um, further down the line, one day he came to me and he said, you know, uh, I'm thinking, this is, you know, I don't know, a year or so later, I'm thinking, you know, would you like to go out to the movies? And again, my heart leapt. I said, yes, yes, yes. And the next day he came and said, I can't take you out to the movies. I'm still not ready for that one person. And so I had to let him go again. And we, a number of times this happened. And then eventually I married someone and he married someone and I moved to Long Island. And my first husband was a lovely man, really lovely. And I was nice to him and he was nice to me. And we never had an argument, uh, but I didn't love him. And one day we went to counseling. <laughs> this is a funny side story. He and I went to counseling and the counselor said to me, well, what's wrong with him? And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with him. And she said, well, there's got to be something wrong with him. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with him. There really wasn't. But one night in the middle of the night, I woke up and I went out in our little living room. We had a beautiful home. I went out in our little living room. And I thought, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And he came out. This is husband number one. He came out and said to me, what's wrong? And I said, well, I love you, but I don't love you the way a wife's supposed to love a husband. And he said, I know. And that was it. And the next day we started splitting up our house and selling everything, you know, going through the process of splitting up and all that. And that, that was no, no children, though. So that was that was fine. After that, I met husband number two, um, a man named Frank, who I'm still friendly with. And he and I have two beautiful young adult children together. Now they're young adults. And um, that relationship didn't work out either. And eventually online. Before Facebook, I connected with Paul. And in, this was 31 years after we had split up. And instantly, all the love came back. Instantly, within, a, within an instant. And, but I was in a marriage. He was in a marriage. And we could not be together. He, we didn't even live it. We didn't live states and states apart. 
And so finally, he was the one who said, we cannot communicate like this anymore. And so we didn't. We didn't talk, call or email or anything for years. And my husband and I split up and we were very friendly. We bought two houses across the street from each other. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> eventually what happened with Paul was he had a heart attack. And in the ambulance, he said to himself, if I don't leave this marriage, I'm, I'll never see her again. And so he was, by then his children were adults and they were out of the house, graduated from college. And so he left his marriage and then we were together. And we were together 10 years. And at first it was a long distance relationship with me on Long Island, writing, being a writer, and he lived in Michigan. And we would see each other often because I would fly to be with him and bring work with me, or he would come to see me, or we would meet in Buffalo where we grew up because we both had family there still. And it was really, really wonderful. But my children were younger than his, and I couldn't leave Long Island to be with him because they were still teenagers. So eventually they were old enough, and I moved to be with Paul, the love of my life. But I wasn't even here in Michigan a year before he was diagnosed with the cancer. And then we had an 18-month cancer journey, mm -hmm. as I called it, and then he passed. And again, I just, I felt flattened. I told my two children, who I love so dearly, I said to them, I don't even want to be here. I was not suicidal, like some people report, but I just, there was nothing that held any interest for me in this mm -hmm. world initially. And what I did, Sandra, was I got things like your book and Zamet's book and and Cyrus Kirkpatrick's book mm -hmm. and on and on and on, book after book after book after book. And I would lay in bed for months reading books about the afterlife and watching videos about the afterlife and listening to radio shows like yours about the afterlife. And little by little by little, I began to trust that this mountain of evidence that is out there that I wasn't even aware of at all. And I don't understand how people cannot be aware of it because it is so ginormous. But most people that I know, even my family members will say, well, we don't really know what happens when we die. And while I would venture that we may not know exactly every detail right. about what happens when we die, it's like standing, I, I just read this quote, it's like standing at the bottom of a mountain and looking at the mountain and saying, I don't see a mountain. Mm -hmm. Once you see it, once it's there in front of you, you it's, it, it's impossible to ignore the huge amount of evidence. Mm -hmm. You might say to yourself, well, that medium, that, that's probably fraudulent. Or that, I don't know, that afterlife, that um, near-death experience, that's probably hallucination. You might be able to dismiss out of hand a, a few things here and there, but it's impossible to dismiss everything. Mm -hmm. You would have to be, I don't, I, well, I don't want to call names, but I would, <laughs> in my own personal opinion, you'd have to be, I, I, I don't know what you'd have to be to ignore everything. Yeah, well, you're so, listening, you're I, talking to people that... I think are on the same page as you because <laughs> many people have listened to hundreds of shows of mine, plus read lots of books and other shows. But I want to ask you a question before we go any further, if I may, when you sure. got reunited with Paul, how yeah. was that relationship? Was it because he really sounded like a young man that didn't want to commit in the earlier days. Was it full blown head over heels for both of you, huge romance, deep love when you finally did connect as, as adults? 
it was something I'd never experienced before. And both of my first husbands, um, my husband number one, husband number two, were very lovely people. I'm still friendly with both of them. My ex-husband, like I said, we lived across the street from each other. So these were not, I, I realize people go through acrimonious, very difficult relationships. My relationships were not like that, but they weren't, I was, I was empty in both of them. I was in relationships, but I wasn't, I felt alone mm-hmm. in the relationship. And I'm not blaming anybody for that. It was just the nature of the relationship. When I was with Paul and Paul, we often looked at each other and said, this is amazing. You know how there's like a billion books on the market about how to work on your relationship? And yes. I'm not discounting those. I'm, I really am not, not. But when I was in my marriages, especially to Frank, because we had children, and I care for Frank. I love Frank. And I adore my children. We both do. He's a good dad. He's a wonderful person. I used to go in Borders Books, which was still open at the time, and sit down with a big cup of coffee and take every single relationship book off the shelf. And I used to go through them and read them like a library of relationship books, trying to make this marriage work. And when I was with Paul, there was no work involved ever, ever. It was easy peasy. And we often said to each other, this is an amazing thing. How is it possible that we don't even try and we just have the best time always. Yeah. And it was not without, it was not without some challenges right. because when I, when I was on Long Island and Paul was here in Michigan, um, my writing business, it was when the economy crashed and my writing business for teachers and children, many of the companies I worked with were shuttering their doors or at least that division of making books for teachers. And so I went from, I was very successful as a I mean, I wasn't Stephen King successful, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I was relatively successful as a writer. I made six figures and was able to work at home and be with my kids. So I was very fortunate, Sandra, in that. And I loved writing about uh, education. I I just love working with kids. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very fortunate. But as fortunate as I was, it all went away. And I didn't see it at first because projects would go away here and there. But finally, it got to the point where I was in my little home on Long Island going through the couch cushions looking for coins to buy food. I am not kidding. My ex-husband had lent me money. I had cashed in all of my retirement savings to try and keep my house afloat. And this was very, very difficult. And at one point, I talked with Paul on the phone long distance. He was in Michigan. I was on Long Island. And he said to me, I think... You want to be with your kids. In other words, what he was saying was, I don't think you want to be with me. I think you want to be with your children because my focus was on keeping the house and keeping being with the kids. And I said, I said, and my kids were in their twenties by then, but they weren't fully launched. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't, they, right. they, they weren't able to own their own house and have their own, they were, they were still in college and, you know, they were still cooking. And I said to him, and he didn't say it in a mean way. He said, you know, I just think you want to stay there. I said, no, 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 I want to be with you. And what was, what's beautiful about that, and so, of course, we, that's when I, my house went into foreclosure. I went bankrupt, and that's when Paul moved me here. But I love that part of the story because it harkens back to the time when we were teenagers where I said to him, if you, you know, if that's your path and you need to go date other people, then go date other people, even though I don't want you to. And he was basically saying, if your path is to stay with your kids on Long Island and be with them and worry about them, then do that. 
And I just thought that they were both examples of unconditional love. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Those two words, unconditional love. Wow. Yes. And my son, my son, who I was most worried about, he was 21. He just went down the street and lived with his dad. But he said to me, Mom, when you go to Michigan, because I said, I, oh my, I, I really, I was very torn. And he said, Mom, when you go to Michigan, he said, just remember this. Paul's a good guy and he loves you. And if you go there and complain or you, you don't fit in or whatever, you're going to make it really, you're going to make it miserable for him and yourself. He said, I want you to go there. I want you to volunteer, get a job, do whatever you need to do to fit in. He said, because if you blow this with him <laughs> and, and he doesn't want to be with you anymore because you're so complaining all the time, he said, um, don't come crying to me when you're old and alone. <laughs> <laughs> you a very wise so, child there. <laughs> right, right, right. And I have to tell you one other thing. The sure. second Paul was diagnosed, the moment he said to me, I have pancreatic cancer. And I knew that was a death sentence. Right. All of that seemed unimportant. And I right. talked to my daughter and my daughter, I said, oh, my God, I was so worried about you and your brother. And she said to me, Mommy, when a true crisis comes into your life, your true priorities come to the fore. That's what she said. And Very I said, wise wow. daughter. Yes. You know, so both of, both of my kids were just supportive and loving. And, and it, it told me any worry that we have is not important. It's not even real. So I plunged, after, after Paul passed and, you know, we made the best of his journey. One of the very last things he said to me, Sandra, one of the very, very last things he said, and he was so, so desperately ill. He literally died a couple of days later. So ill. Mm. He said to me, we were sitting on his, on his hospital bed and he had all these, you know, you know what tubes coming out of every yes. part of his body. And he was so, so, so desperately ill by then. And we're just, I was just sitting side by side, our legs dangling over the edge of the bed. People, when they're dying, they're often restless at night. They don't sleep well, and they're mm -hmm. up and down and all over the place. And he just very quietly said, you know, I think this whole thing has brought us even closer together. And to me, that was worth a million I love yous, because mm -hmm. that's really what it was. The cancer journey, as much as it was an unwanted journey, there's something to appreciate in it which was that we grew even closer together. I appreciated him more than I ever, ever did before. And then when he passed, even more. Yeah. And so... I get it. Those, I get it. Are, yeah. Yes, there my, are those gifts in that. My dad passed of cancer, as you know, and those last five yes. months, although it wasn't, you know, husband-wife relationship, you know, talk about appreciation and that love for each other and even getting to know who we are and what we're capable of as human beings. I wouldn't do it any other way. Well, that's another thing is that when, um, when Paul was first diagnosed, a family member said to me, uh, well, what are you going to do? And I had been working as I'm a teacher. I'd been working in a school here and I said, well, I'm not going back to work because he was diagnosed in the summer. I said, I'm not going back in the fall because I want to, you know, I want to spend every minute with him. He said, well, what are, you, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm his caregiver. And this was in the beginning when Paul did not look ill. And the family member said, well, what, what do you mean caregiving? You're not doing anything for him. And I said, well, I go to his doctor appointments with him. And he said something very crude that I cannot even repeat here. But he basically said, well, yeah, well, what are you going to have to do when you have to do something unsavory to help him? And I said, well, I 
guess I'll just do it. But I laid awake all night thinking, I've never been with a desperately ill person. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Am I up to the... I yes. don't know. What, oh, my God. I never I even thought of that. I bet you rose to the occasion, didn't you? I bet well, you did. Well, not only that, but I think... And I don't think I'm extraordinary in mm-hmm. that. I think I, I, I love Paul's still continue to love him so much that you don't even think twice about it. It's anything you can do anything that they want, anything to make them comfortable, mm-hmm. anything to help them. And I'm sure you were the same. Everybody's the same pretty much. I think. That's love. And so when looking back on it, I thought, Oh my gosh, I never would have thought that I would have been able to do the things I needed to do to help him. Right. And this is a little tip for other people who go through this because so often in, even in the group that, um, that we, uh, run online, uh, our Zoom group and stuff, people regret this. Oh, I wish I had done this or that or the other thing. And you know what, Sandra, I decided I wasn't going to do that to myself. I was already had enough pain from the grief. I was not going to go back and rake myself over the coals because, and there were a couple little things I would have done differently, not enormous things, but a few things I wish I had done differently. And I gave myself a break with that. I thought, well, all right, I didn't think of it back then, so so be it. And I let it go. And I didn't beat myself up. And anything I forgot to tell Paul, there really wasn't too much. But I just told, I just talked to him all the time now. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lost opportunity. Which, Mary Beth, I want to, because time goes by very quickly on these shows, as we both know. And I, what, I want to, first of all, acknowledge you for that. And, I, and for anyone who is sitting now with regrets about what they should have done differently, shouldn't have done, should have said, shouldn't have said, it's all part of the grieving process. And one thing I firmly believe is at the time we did the best job we could and it doesn't serve us to go back with what we should or shouldn't do, shouldn't have done. And our minds can be overbearing and create habits for regrets and thinking and all that stuff. So if you can try to take a moment, be in the present moment or push that thought out of your mind and trust that you did the very best at that time. But Mary Beth, I want to get into some of the things that uh, you're, well, first of all, that you're writing about and that you're going to talk about at the upcoming symposium and some of the things that had you start really believing that Paul was still with you. Can we move into that conversation? Yes. The first time I realized it well first of all first of all for your listeners something that's helpful to me for those of uh, those listeners who may or may not be familiar with this is I had a little bit of background with this because for years before this happened I was before I even worried about anything about death uh, I had been listening to Abraham Hicks and Abraham Hicks makes afterlife stuff well they they're actually abraham hicks does not focus on afterlife they most abraham is a group of non-physical teachers that are channeled through esther hicks Mm -hmm. and they're very popular and they're very easy to listen to and mostly mostly they give advice for how to live your day-to-day earth life right they don't very profound yeah yes and but, but but really the message is just feel good because if you're putting yourself in a feel good place Everything else falls into place. I think when you feel good, you know, you're connected to, as they call it, source energy, pure positive energy. And when you feel good, you feel like helping other people. You feel loving. You feel, you know, it doesn't do us any good at all to um, to wallow in pain, it, to be martyrs. I mean, pain is part of our human experience, but I use it as a little temple bell to say, oh, wait a minute. I don't like feeling like this. How can I help myself feel better? And that's really basically Abraham's message. 
along the way, they often t- they always talk about <clears throat> uh, the fact that there is no death. There is no death. We continue on, but they talk about it in very broad brush strokes. And so I had that in the back of my mind that there is no death. I sort of knew that, but I didn't have to really think about it until Paul passed. And then I was desperate for where is he? Where is he? And one time, not long, a few days after he passed, I was at the sink <laughs> brushing my teeth. And all of a sudden I felt like a whoosh of a whoosh of sensibility of Paul. And it wasn't a memory. You know, it wasn't like I was remembering that time we went out to dinner or that time that we uh, went on the trip to Hawaii. It wasn't like that. It was just like, whoosh, like, oh, wow. But instantly, as as my um, my Zoom room partner, uh, William Murray, would say, because he had that, everybody has that experience at one point or another, it instantly triggers the missing of them. Sure. So you get that, you get that love feeling, and then all the, like, within, like, one millionth of a second, you're bursting into tears. Mm-hmm. And so, but I liked that feeling. And so what I did was I began to notice when it happened more and more. And sometimes it would happen from a memory. On purpose, I would do a memory, like I remember Paul or something we did together. And other times it would just be spontaneous. And I love the spontaneous ones because it didn't come from my, at least my conscious awareness. So I I began to, you know, notice that more and more and see different things, see different signs from him. And one of the strongest signs I had from him was I couldn't remember the dress I had worn when we finally could be together, as he would say, street legal. I couldn't remember. And I, I'm thinking, how could I forget what I wore? That must have been so, I remember the day, I remember the moment. How could, I can't remember what I wore. And I was visiting, I was from Michigan, visiting a friend on Long Island, staying in a friend's home. And when I had moved to Michigan, I had given away a lot of my things. and I had given her a lot of my clothes. And I looked in her closet. Actually, I was in her spare bedroom. And I looked in her closet to see if I could find, you know, the, the, the dress in question. And I couldn't find it. And she said to me, Mary Beth, my son and his family are coming over. They're going on a trip for two weeks across the country. And uh, they're coming over. So, uh, and I knew her son and his wife and their kids. But I hadn't seen them in a while. And you know how kids shoot up like weeds. And in walks the family. And the daughter, who is about 13, is wearing the dress. Hmm. because I had given her, my friend, the dress. She had given it to her granddaughter. And it was just a little sheath dress. And I was like, oh, that's it. There's the dress. The odds of me being there out of town, her family coming over at that moment, they were going to go out of town for two weeks. The odds of the daughter, the granddaughter wearing the dress are so astronomical. I, I, I just, it just took my breath away. Mm-hmm. So, and I have, a, I have like a, a, you know, a book of those different things, things, things like that. The other thing I did, though, in my travels was I, I looked at the, uh, I found my way to Victor and Wendy Zamet's afterlife report, and it had their Friday re- report. And in their report, there was, they all often put videos in that report. And there was a video, and it said it was about a woman and a man who communicated across the veil. And I had never heard of anything like that. And so I clicked on it, and that was, that led me to the work of uh, medium Leslie Flint. Mm. So can we talk about that? You bet we can. Yeah, we had uh, Carl Jackson Barnes on once last year, who opened us up, anyone who heard that episode about the world of Leslie Flint. And I was just floored, inspired, goosebumps the whole time. So I love that uh, 
that we're going to talk about this. Yes. So you'll have to definitely in this description talk about who Leslie Flint was and the special kind of mediumship. Yeah, so this is really what my talk in what my talk in the at the uh, AREI symposium is going to be. And again, I tell people I'm not an expert. I'm not, you know, I'm just like you. I just go to the website and listen to the to the um, audios. So I listened to this clip that was on the Afterlife Report, and it was Dinshaw Nanji, Doctor Dinshaw Nanji, speaking with his wife Annie Nanji, and she is in spirit, and he is here. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by this. I couldn't believe this. And I began to look to to find out more about who this medium was and who these people were and all about this. And Leslie Flint, for those people, your listeners who may or may not know, he was a what they call a direct voice medium. Now, most mediums that we know were, were uh, there, say, the Long Island medium or John Edward, you know, popular mediums. They're what we call mental mediums. They get, they receive mental messages and impressions and all that. Right. Leslie Flint was different. Leslie Flint was a direct voice medium, which means he didn't receive message mentally. Well, he may have, but that wasn't his specialty. He, the direct voice piece of it is not a mental mediumship. It's also not where you're channeling like Esther Hicks does, where you bring voices through and you, and, and you use your own voice to speak mm-hmm. the spirit's words. It's not like that. You're sitting in a room and the voice of the spirits come into the room and everyone in the room hears them, including the medium. So, and Leslie Flint did not sit in trance. He was fully aware and awake. He wasn't, they, he did sit in the dark. He did have, and this is part, I, I can, I can read about it. I can never 100% understand it, but he did have the ectoplasm that a lot of physical mediums have come out of him, but he was aware and awake and would converse with the spirits as well as everyone else in the room. And he he was um, he was alive between 1911 and he passed in 1994. So he had mm-hmm. a very long life. He was into his 80s, and he had his first séance at age 17, and he began to develop under the tutelage of a woman named Edith Munden, who he eventually married. She was older, but she was like his mentor and his friend, and he really loved her for that. And after World War II broke out in 1933 um after that his work began to take off and the thing is the thing about it that i've read is that during times of war world war one and world war two when there's a great amount of death Mm -hmm. people's interest in the afterlife really spike that's right and so yes and so he had many many sitters interestingly though he never charged a penny for his seances where he would sit with a with a number of sitters. Don't you love that? Doesn't that speak to me? And he's also, I'm sure you know this, one of the most tested mediums that lived on planet earth. I mean, tested by so many to make sure he wasn't making those voices appear that he wasn't like a ventriloquist and the real voices of people's loved ones appeared in midair, so to speak. So, right. And Carl and Carl Jackson Brown, he, you know, we're uh, Brown. I mean, Barnes. I always say, I always say Jackson Brown. (laughs) <laughs> Brown. That's okay. Never mind. It's, it, it's kind of an inside joke, but uh, Carl Jackson Barnes, he recently reached out to me and he said, Mary Beth, listen to this, listen to this Leslie Flint uh, recording. And there was nothing. 
It was him and another person sitting and waiting and waiting for half an hour and no one showed up. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it just showed that, you know, he couldn't conjure up people. He wasn't imitating anything. This was really real. That's right. And the other thing I love about the Leslie Flint Educational um, Trust is it's on the website. People can go there. You, You can listen to the recordings for free. They're available for free. Now, not every single one of Leslie Flint's seances were recorded, but in the 1950s, so this is about 20 years lost, but in the 1950s, there were two sitters, George Woods and Betty Green, who began recording them because by then they had some recording equipment. And they, we now have one over 1,000 seances recorded. There are, 30, I believe, 32 of the what they call the Annie Nanji recordings on the trust website. And there are, Carl told me, probably 30 more. Um, the, ta- the recordings are on tape and they're very fragile. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of the same. Wait, I have a name. <laughs> Jack Terrence Andrews over in Arizona mm-hmm. painstakingly turns these tapes into digitized recordings and it's a really a, a labor of love. So anyway, and people can, first recording. let me just say people can find this website, leslieflint.com. And it's a great place to learn more about Leslie Flint and listen to yeah, thousands of audios and you'll hear people in their voices, even some celebrities as they lived communicating with their loved ones. So yeah, let's talk about the Nanjis. Yeah. So I listened to the Nanji. Uh, recording. I was fascinated. And then I went to the website and I saw all these recordings from, I mean, there's many other people, some yes. famous people, some not so famous people. And, but I was interested in the Nanjis because that was a husband and wife and they were soulmates and they were romantic with each other. And I wanted to listen to all of them. The problem was that out of the 30, I think there were maybe two that were transcribed. And I found first, number one, I'm hard of hearing. Number two, because it was not just one person coming to speak with sitters, in other words, one spirit person coming in, it was uh, Dinshaw Nanji speaking with his wife, and then there was um, Mr. Flint and often his his uh, spiritual sidekick, Mickey, and sometimes they're all talking at the same time, and it's really hard for me to understand what they're saying, and they have accents. So I contacted I, I'm not sh- I'm not quite sure if I contacted Jack Terrence Andrews or Carl Jackson Barnes about this, but I said to them, why are there not more transcriptions? It makes it so much easier to listen and read along. And they said, because they can't be, these um, recordings can't be put in what the software now that just does it automatically because of the accents and because of the condition of the recordings. They're not really all that great. They're not, you know, they try to make them as, as cleaned up as possible, but they're old. And they said they have to be done by hand uh, by volunteers, and we don't have volunteers. And I That's said, right. I'll volunteer to do it. And so I started doing it. And man, oh, man, is it tedious. Let me just tell you, because I try to get them exact, because, I'm, you know, the spirit voices and, and pe- this historic seance. <laughs> and it would take me for maybe a minute of recording. It, would, it, it could take me like two hours to get yes. a tiny, teeny bit. Each seance is about a half an hour long. But in doing that, in doing that transcription, I felt like I really began to know these people. I felt like they were friends of mine. And 
I recognize in them, even though the things that they discuss are different than what Paul and I discussed and all that, the love and the devotion and the excitement that they had just to be in, to be communicating with each other was something that was very, very familiar to me. And it gave me such hope that this would be true for Paul and me. And it was so, it is so very believable. And the other thing I loved about it, I always say to people that Dr. Dinshananji, who was a chemist from India, and that's significant because often scientists are not so willing to step into our community. Mm -hmm. And so he was a chemist, but he was desperate to connect with his daughter, desperate to connect with his daughter. And we have found out that uh, our our other good friend, Stig Burlston, if I'm pronouncing his mm-hmm. last name correctly, he did, he's from Sweden. He said, you know, I can do some background research. And he found um, he found Dinshaw's daughter from a first marriage, who is now older. But she said, when my, when Annie passed, my father was so grief stricken, I couldn't even live with him. I moved out of the house. He was so beside himself with grief. And as you listen to the recordings through the years, there's 15 years worth of recordings. Um, he met with, Dinshaw met with Mr. Flint twice a year. Wow. And sometimes for, sometimes they would sit twice in that meeting, like two days in that mm-hmm. meeting. So uh, you can see his own grief lifting off of him and through the years, through the conversations. And toward the end, he's saying, oh, yes, I'm an 80-year-old man and people don't even believe this of me. Don't I look good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. You can see that, you know, as long as he knows she's there, as long as we know our loved ones are there and they're happy and they're healthy and they love us and we will be reunited in the relationship we are familiar with. Like, I don't want to I don't want to cross over and find out Paul's my uncle. You know, I want him to be my lover, my husband, my sweetheart. As long as we know that that continues in that way and that's what the Nanji recordings reassured me of, then I can go on. I can go on. And in the recordings, which there's like so much stuff to talk, you know, so many references that it would be impossible, obviously, to, you know, to bring your listeners every single piece of it. But I do know that some the people are most concerned when when you lose someone, you're most concerned about a number of things. Mm -hmm. One of them being one of them being, you know, will they be when I cross over, will my son be my son? Will my husband be my husband? Will my mother be my mother? And the answer is from the analogies, yes, the relationship here continues. It's It continues right now as a trans-dimensional relationship, as William Murray coined it. Mm-hmm. And when we get over there, it will, it continues the way it is. So I love them because the, the, when I listen to the recording, Sandra, I pick up on kind of four different categories of conversation that this husband and wife have with each other. Okay. And the first is that they just have ordinary husband-wife banter. Some of the people who have listened to the tapes, they say it's almost like you're eavesdropping on them, you know, in their, for the privacy of their home. And for example, (laughs) this cracked me up. One day she said to him, "Uh, that hat you're wearing, you, I'm paraphrasing, but she says to him, that hat you're wearing, and he says, yes. I'm. She says, well, it's just so old. I want you to get a new hat. And he says, no, it's fine. And she said, no, 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 no. I, it's just, it's so old. I want you to go out and get yourself a new hat and that will be from me. 
And isn't that like so typical of so many, you know, so many marriages where people say, you know, oh, you're wearing that today? (laughs) Which shows, Mary Beth, that she's right there with them. I mean, we often, it's easy to think our loved ones are off in heaven somewhere far away, but they're right Right. here with us, just vibrating in a different frequency. We can't see them, but they're very aware, correct, of what we're doing. Exactly. Exactly. And then she always asks him, uh, you know, a number of times in the recordings, and this is true of real life too, when you live with people, is that the same conversations will pop up again and again. And so in throughout the number of different recordings, every so often she'll say to him things like, um, you're, you're, you're keeping my things. Like, you know, he's, he hasn't removed her things. As she says, my bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll never part with any of them. And she says, oh, you know, you don't, it, it's okay. And he says, no, when I die, that'll be time for the other people can get rid of them. Then I won't need them. But right now, he says, I often bury my face in your clothes and I smell them. I mean, how many of us have done that with right. a loved one? It's, and, and, and it's so these little reports, even though they're little tiny, little, mm, little tiny threads into their life. It, it, for me, it made me feel like we're all the same. Yes. We're all, we know how many people have felt this. Everybody, most everybody, unless, you know, you pass when you're a baby, most everybody feels this kind of thing. Um, and then she also, Annie's very funny, and she also tells Mr. Flint that he eats too much and he's too fat. And everybody <laughs>, laughs in the stands. Ha, 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 ha. And, and she says, no, I mean it. And she almost says, I mean it in a good way, really. <laughs> it's the, the seances are funny. They're upbeat. There's nothing heavy or desperate or horrible about them. So, oh, and one, one of my favorite quotes, he says to her, uh, uh, Dinshaw, or um, Dinu, as, as his nickname is, he says to her, when I come to see you, when I, in other words, when I pass and I'm with you, will I be able to feel your kiss on my lips? And she says, of course, of course you will. She says, our world is as solid to us as yours is to you. And That's I love great. that. I love that. It's so beautiful. And mm-hmm. for me, it implies even more than a kiss. You know, people want more than that. They want the full, whole erotic experience with, with, a, with a beloved loved one, a, a romantic loved one. And so she's reassuring him, of course, darling, of course, of course, of course, that's the way it is. And she says she comes to him and she touches his hand and she, you know, or she knocks on the wall. She does all these different things that people report, you know, signs from their loved one. Also, she says, interestingly, that if he goes shopping and he sees something he would have purchased for her if she were here, but he doesn't because she's not. She says, I see you shopping for me and I see you wanting to pick things for me. And I tell you, I am replicating them in our life here. And when you get here, you will see them. Oh, so that's that's, sweet. That's kind of cool. So, yeah. So it's a very real world. The spirit world. Yes. Very real. Yes. Yes. And every morning I pour coffee. I pour two cups of coffee. If you were here right now, you'd see two cups of coffee on my mm-hmm. table, one for Paul and one for me. And uh, one one time I, I'm pouring, you know, and I sit and I talk to him, sometimes mentally and sometimes out loud. And um, one time, um, but of course, you know, he doesn't drink his cup here. And I imagine he's having a cup in, in the afterlife. And one time I, uh, I thought to myself, you know, 
sometimes I drink his cup too, but sometimes I just pour it down the sink and I think, oh, it's kind of a waste. And I had a reading, I'm not kidding you, uh, with, a, with a medium online. I wasn't even talking to her. It was just in a chat room. And she was reading me. And she said, he's bringing me this. This is my Paul. He's bringing me the smell of coffee. And he's saying, it's not a waste. And she didn't even know what that meant. Oh, that's great. That's I know. Great. Isn't that cool? So so a lot of the Annie Nanji and Dinshan Nanji parallels to, you know, what I'm experiencing in my life here. So when I pour Paul a cup of coffee, <clears throat> I imagine he is receiving that. A lot of people, I want to just make this point that a lot of people who are grieving are looking for signs from their loved one. And sometimes yes. on afterlife groups or on, I don't, I don't go on widow groups because they're just too sad. I was for a while and the widow groups were just so excruciatingly in pain and they're, they're like on cut glass and they'll say, oh, I'm desperate for a sign. I don't get any sign. And what William Murray and I tell people is, you know what? Don't worry about that so much. Just get, just start by giving them signs. You know what I mean? It's the opposite. Like pour the cup of coffee for them. I love out, that. Yes, go shopping and pick up something, pick up, like I don't know, you know, some flowers or something and say, mm, these are for you. You don't even have to really buy them or you could buy them and bring them home for him, for him or her. And so it, it's really shifting it from, oh, I, and then once you begin to raise your own feelings and feel better, 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 you will notice them because they are around you all the time. It's just that sometimes in grief, we're so distracted and so upset and so sad and we want them to appear sitting on our couch. And, you know, that's a rare thing. So it, it shifts it to, it gives you something, it empowers you to be able to do something yourself. Mm. You know, write them a letter, write them a letter. Mary uh, Beth, this it, is it, good. It, Very good. I, yeah. I want to um, be mindful of our time here just because I want to make sure we talk about what you're doing with William. But um, I have not heard it put this way ever in all these 270 <laughs> some episodes give them a sign. And it really is the acting as if they're with you, pour the cup of coffee, uh, whether you right. don't buy a gift in your mind saying, this is what I have for you. And whether it's flowers, whether it is a gift. And I've heard um, Scott Milligan, who's a physical medium, say something similar when, or one of his people that speak through him say this, is that they get the gifts when we think it, when we present it. So being proactive, ask, acting as if they're with you, talking to them, including them. And that does make us feel better. And in turn, when our vibrations are higher, and that's what I believe it takes for them to communicate with us. So I think you just said something like brilliant. And you no, may not realize how brilliant, but... Brilliant. Sometimes it's the ordinary things. One of the women oh, in our group, uh, in, in our afterlife group, whose husband passed, and she's alone. She lives alone, and she's elderly, lovely woman. But her family's not on board with this. And according to her, they think she's, you know, lost her crackers or whatever. Oh, is. I think. But she said she was so sad and yeah. just walking around her house alone, empty, sobbing, sobbing, desperately crying. She says screaming for her house, screaming. Mm -hmm. And she and so William and I, you know, said to just talk to him. And she said, I just, even though I felt silly all by myself, I did it. I talked aloud to him. And she said, I started feeling him. I really started, began to feel him around me. And she tells about all, she says, now I can tell he's sitting right here. I mean, so it it does, you know, it it really does work to help you raise your vibration. And it's also not about just them giving to you. It's about you giving. So that's 
That's, that's really, a goal really of mine. Nice. And just um, to recap a little, I hate to interrupt you, but I'm just being mindful here of everything we need to accomplish in a short period of time. You are speaking at the Afterlife Symposium. And for those that are there, if your true love is someone who is in the spirit world and you want to learn more about uh, the Nanji um, recordings, what else mm-hmm. has been communicated, uh, how to yourself be in a good relationship with your loved one transdimensionally. You want to be sitting with Mary Beth. It'll be on the Friday, September 14th at 1145 is when her speech will be in the, it's called the Rattler's Room. Um, but if you go to afterlifesymposium.org the, and you click on the 2018 schedule, you'll actually be able to see, you know, all the different times where everybody's speaking. But you, you will go into this so much more in your speech and really let us know what life is like on the other side. But I love how we can be more in communication. Um, But I do want to hear about your working with William, because I think this, not everybody's obviously going to get to the symposium, but I'd love to hear more about how you came together with William. And you had said something to me earlier about affirmations that William uses and how it impacts your grief and talk about your Facebook group and your zoom room. If I may, just before, just before I go there, I just want to close out with Ananji, but one very wonderful quote that she said that I think is really, well, there's two things that I think Mm -hmm. is really helpful for people who are suffering the way I was suffering. Uh, one one thing she said was um, he was he was talking about he was talking about the fact that he went to a garden where they had a park or something where they had been and he was starting to get a little teary. Dinshaw was starting to get upset, and he remembered and he's longing for her. Even though he could talk to her, he could yeah, still he's still, still longing. You know, something we would all oh my god we would all like give our right arm for. He had that, but it still wasn't enough. You know he wanted to be with her. And he says, I go to that. He said, I go to the spot where you were. And I recall those precious moments. And she said, but they will come again Mm. and they will be even more wonderful here. When you come, I'm quote, this is a quote here. When you come, you will understand things. I cannot possibly tell you because words, I don't know. If you try to remember the wonderful things and the wonderful happenings we shared here, it is so much more. When you come to me, that's all I care about. And one other time, this is to conclude the Annie Nanji thing. Mm-hmm. One other time, when when she opened, every time she comes to him, she's all excited, and she's she always says, "Oh, what shall we talk about? What shall we?" And she has this little Swedishy accent. What shall we talk about now? <laughs> Which I'm not good at imitating. Yeah, you're but just fine. Says, she says, to, she says to him, oh, my darling, I can think of nothing, but I love you. But that is everything. And I think, oh, my God, it just was just, you know, food for my soul. My God, my Paul is still there. Right. He's with me every day. And he's, he's with me. He's waiting for me and he's loving me. And that's what I want to reassure all of your readers, you know, no matter who has passed, that that is true for all of us. That is true for all of us. And, um, you know, if you're someone who lost a husband or a sweetheart or a fiance or whatever, twin soul, go listen to the Anandji. And I, I've done five of the record, uh, five of the transcripts, and we have a couple other people working on them as well. And uh, it's just. It's just that they take forever. <laughs> I know, but this is all going to come together but, eventually in a book. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. that's my, yes, my, our goal, yes. So we're working on a book. 
um, uh, all the people that I mentioned to date, and there's another woman, um, I didn't get her permission to mention her last name, but her name is Maria, and she's doing transcripts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Jack and Carl and Stig and Maria and I were all working, and the book will be, it will be like a guidebook for the Nanjis and uh, to listen to them and understand what they're saying. And um, any of the proceeds will go back to the trust because it, it, Jack curates the website. Of course, that costs money. And, um, you know, to all these things, you know, things cost money, even with volunteers. And so we feel like this will be a help to people like me. So oh, most good. definitely, because we can all map on our relationships, even though, you know, it isn't our loved ones speaking through it, but you'll see how real they are. And and also for the listener right now, if you should be listening to this episode right now on YouTube and you scroll down to the description, I have a live link where you can listen to some of these Nanji uh, audios. So you can go right away and, and listen. And it's very healing to hear these these words back and forth from husband and wife and yes, even across the veil, but you'll really get it that your loved one, whoever that may be is still with you. So anyways, and this, yeah. this summer, last, last summer I had the, the honor of being big over in Copenhagen, which is a big story we can't go into, but I met him, which was surprising. And this summer I just met Carl, um, Carl Jackson Barnes. Yeah. I'm who's jealous. Was in Scotland. I was in, I was in Ireland. I traveled. We had together. And he told me two things that are really important. I learned two things from Carl that are key in all of this, trying to feel better when you are longing so much. He said, number one is patience. And he told that refers back to the, you know, the, the recording, the recording with uh, Leslie Flint, where he waited for half an hour and nothing happened. Right. So just be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with your loved one and all of that. Just be, you know, be patient. Take a breath. and. Something else that was interesting from Carl was I said to him, sometimes I lament the fact that some of my nearest and dearest are not on board with this. And it's hard to share my enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for it with them. And he said, Carl said, I don't share it with people. I don't, unless he knows they're like-minded. That's right. But he said, I just don't. And I think that 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 can, you know, you you want so much to be so excited to share it, like with the people that you're closest to. But if they're not on board, it can be very discouraging. And the last thing we need is any sort of discouragement. So just bless them and let them have their mm-hmm. own path and, and, and share with the people who you know are going to go hip, hip, hooray. So that those are two little tips. Good words. As for William, <laughs> yeah, oh, not mine, but yes, good words. As for William and me, William and I, William Murray is um, a person, I, I, I hope he doesn't mind me talking about him, <laughs> but he, he's on the afterlife, uh, many of the afterlife groups, and he uh, was married to his wife, Irene, uh, soulmates, they were married for many years, uh, over 20 years together, and Irene passed from cancer as well, and he wrote a book that's online, um, it's called Love After Life, it's an Amazon book. That's available for uh, $2.99, like really minimal amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also has a blog. And if you Google his name, William Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, and blog, it'll come up. Love After Life is his blog. And the book is available as a PDF for free on his website, if you uh, on his blog page, if you nice. want to look at that. So, yeah. So William and I were on these other afterlife groups and began to gravitate toward each other as law of attraction will have people who are like-minded gravitate toward each other. And William began to just, first he described how the grief was so incredibly searing. It was horrible for him. You know, he was having panic attacks. He was throwing up. He was, 
he couldn't imagine life without his Irene. Right. And uh, they have six children between the two of them. And, you know, he wasn't ready to take himself out. And so William, though, is very smart. He's like my mentor. And he and I both agreed, I mean, in our own heads, not with each, we hadn't even communicated, but I mean, we were in agreement with this fact that there is no death. And that if we were going to feel our loved ones around us, we had to make, we had to lift ourselves up out of that deep, deep grief. And uh, Williams, you know, his learning was a little bit different than mine. I've, I've, I've learned from a lot of different teachers, but many of our, much of our teachings were the same that we brought to this grief experience. And William decided, which I think was brilliant, that when he, he noticed, he noticed that when he felt Irene's presence around him, he would, it would feel good for a millisecond, and then that grief would kick in. And he began saying to her out loud, you know, Irene, don't, don't stop coming near me. Let me handle my own grief. I want to feel your love. And he allowed himself to feel it more and more and more and more. And he kept this blog. And in the blog, he started saying, hey, you know what? It's been, you know, three weeks. I haven't really felt too much. I haven't felt that fearing. Of course, I still long for her, but it's not as bad. And eventually he realized he had eradicated it. And he did it in his book. He has a number of, uh, I guess you could call them action steps that he took to really eradicate the grief. And meanwhile, on my own, um, irrespective of what William was doing, I was doing similar things. And we found together that we're more in love with our crossed over sweethearts than even we were when they were here. And William wow. says that's part of the purpose of grief. He said, imagine when we get there, how fabulous that reunion, how amazing that reunion. And so he and I kind of, uh, many of the other grief groups, the traditional grief groups online or people, you know, and they're all well-intended, Sandra, mm-hmm. but so of many course. of them really they really ascribe to the notion that, yes, you love your loved one. Yes, you can communicate with them. Yes, you can feel better. But you're always going to have that hole in your heart. And William and I didn't feel that. And so we kind of broke off and did our own thing. And we have a Facebook group called Love After Life. And we have a Zoom room meeting uh, where we meet at every week at 3 to 4 New York time. But we have people all around the world who come. And now William and I just sort of sit back and they all kind of talk to each other about, can you imagine this amazing, this and this amazing, that. And our, William and I, I don't, I don't, I don't like to speak for other people, but I know from talking to him that we really believe that the most paramount thing is to believe that every single thing that happens to you is for your own benefit, including your partner's cancer and including death. Right. Every single thing is for your own benefit. And if you can find the parts to appreciate, I know it sounds I know it sounds so, you know, uh, what, um, what am I trying to, uh, Pollyanna-ish. But if you can find the parts to appreciate, which is different from gratitude. Gratitude is, thank you, thank you, thank you. I would never say that for cancer or Paul's passing, by the way. Right. But, I, but there are things I can appreciate about it. That's right. About those things. And if you can find the parts you can appreciate, if you can begin to support yourself from the inside out, and do whatever is necessary to make yourself feel better and better and better and better. Then you can feel your loved one with you. And I feel Paul with me all the time. I mean, that's, it's funny. I almost feel him coming and going the way you would in a normal situation. Like he went to work and I went to work and then we came back together and had dinner. You know, he's not with me every single second of the day, 
but I, but there's times where he just kind of whooshes in and I say, Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> That's the other thing. William says, thank you to everything. Um, people will say, I had the craziest dream last night. I dreamt that my husband and spirit it went off and doesn't love me anymore. And William would say, that's your husband visiting mixed in with your fears. Mm-hmm. That's so right. thank your husband for coming in your vi- and say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm so fearful about so many other things. Thank you for showing up. And I promise I'm going to try and feel better. So next time you show up, it's easier for you to get through. So there's nothing that shows up on William's radar. And I'm practiced as well at this or my radar as something horrible, tragic, disgusting, hideous, nothing, nothing. It's all good. And it's all for our benefit. And the afterlife is real. Our loved ones are right there. They're right here. The afterlife is all about us. It's not anywhere far off. It's not up in the heavens or anything. It's right here. And so that's what we tell people. And here's another thing. William said, you know what? If at the end of our life, let's say we close our eyes and there's nothing. Well, there's not going to be anybody there to say, ha ha, you were wrong. And I would rather live my rest of my life with Irene in my heart and in my life and in my thoughts and in my actions than not have her with me. And so that's why I've chosen to live my life as well. That's beautiful. And with 271 now episodes of this show, I do believe we close our eyes and we open them and everybody's there, including our animals, our loved ones. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, it's not even do I think yes. we go on. It's like I know we go on. Mary Beth, you have been a phenomenal guest. You saying you're just a regular person, as am I. But I do think it is your journey, your pain, your experiences, your interests, your taking the time to go out searching. And now I tell you, I think you're raising your vibrations also by giving back and and um, going through all these many tapes and writing the book and sharing and speaking. And I can't even imagine how many um, people who have lost their soulmates or think they have lost them that you're able to reunite and give them hope. So thank you for that. Well, and it and and it's changed my view on death. Of course, I mean, I had a, another loved one pass. My my ex mother in law, grandma, to my kids mm-hmm. just recently passed. It was sad. I mean, I love her dearly. But I know, <clears throat> I know she's perfectly well and happy and young and fine. And so it's the, the, it takes the bite out of death, the death experience, when, you, when someone you love dies, when you know these things. It still hurts, but it's not so horrible. Right. And it's doable. And we're all in this together. And it happens to almost virtually, like I said, unless you die when you're, you know, <clears throat> very, 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 very young, uh, it happens to all of us eventually. So... Uh, I think that, you know, this community and your offerings, your radio show and everybody who contributes in all their many different ways, it's so, it's not a horrible, hideous thing. It's a very exciting, invigorating, wonderful, uh, sparkling, wondrous world to be in the world of afterlife. And so I'm so glad that Paul ushered me into this. I love Paul. Yeah. And can anyone um, that's lost a loved one, I, I hate to use the word lost because they're not lost. I call, No, no. Right. Can they be part of your group? Your oh, yes. Facebook anybody. Can. Well, yes. As long as they, as long as they have, um, like, for example, some people come to us and said, my, my son died and we gently and gracefully decline them because we are not experts. 
We have no notion about what it's like when a child passes. That's a whole different kettle of fish. And so William and I wouldn't even begin to address that. And William goes out of his way every single time he speaks or talks to say to people, in my opinion, in my experience, right. in my own knowing. This may not be your knowing. That's right. But William we, just recently had... Go ahead. No, you finish. <laughs> no, I was going to say, William just recently had... Uh, he um, had an astral projection with Irene that he's talking about, you know, in the groups and things like that. So I don't think it's a secret. And he now is convinced more than ever. He went and met with her. And so that's so exciting. I haven't had that happen. But he'll say, here's how it happened for me. I don't know that this is going to be your path. I don't know. Here's what happened for me. I'll share it with you. But I am not you. And so you're you might not have an astral projection no matter how hard you try because that may not be in the cards for you. I'm not sure exactly how every single, none of us are sure exactly how every single thing works. We don't know how every single thing works here on earth, you know? (laughs) So, so uh, he always, we always give that caveat that it's not our experience may not be exactly your experience, but I will tell you that it is beneficial always, no matter what your circumstances to always reach for something that feels better, 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 better. That does serve. That does serve you and people around you. We can always learn and take nuggets from anything, even if we don't buy into everything we hear. But the name of your Facebook group, am I correct that it's Forever in Love with our partners who have crossed over? No, that's no. not our group. That's okay. a different group. Okay. Our our group is our group is uh, Love After Life. Oh, well, that's much easier to type out anyways. Yes. Love yes. And by the way, I, I want to say, Sandra, what you just said yeah. um, about William and I also have, you know, we have our own things, but we also advise people, take it or leave it, but we also advise people that in the world of the afterlife, you're going to hear things that don't resonate with you. Mm-hmm. And William and I, in an effort to keep our vibration high and happy and loving, if, if I hear a piece of information that doesn't sound right to me, I just throw it out. I don't even pay any attention to it. I don't worry. About it. I did in the past. I would read stuff and I would be in, I, it would throw me for a loop. I'd be sobbing out loud. Now I think, oh, well, that doesn't resonate with me. And I just discard it. Yeah. And maybe that's sticking my head in the sand. I don't know, but I no, don't care. It's okay. <laughs> Take what empowers yeah. you. And that goes for any information you get from anybody, whether it's on one of these episodes, a book you read, you know, don't throw the whole thing out because of one thing. Take what empowers you because we are each on our own individual journey. And just one thing about your Facebook group, I have no problem that you are communicating with people who are interested in the trans-dimensional love life. Uh, And there are great groups like Helping Parents Heal that work with grieving parents. And if you're not a grieving parent, you know, that may not be the group for you because it is specialized and and there are so many. Yeah, so much other information for grievers. And yeah, and it's possible that some of the tenants and some of the things that we share are useful for those Mm -hmm. people, but we just don't feel, we really feel like that's way out of our element. That's not, you know, we we don't have that. William and I are only working on our own experience and what works for us and what's been helpful for us. That's what we can share. Yes. Knowledgeably. But I can't, I, my children are here. I, I haven't lost a child, you know, and uh, so I can't speak responsibly in any way, manner, or form to anyone who has, for example, lost a child, but yet there are groups who can. do, yeah. And if someone's listening right now and on one of these episodes we have not covered 
uh, your particular area of grief, I can 99.9% guarantee you that I know someone to connect you with or a Facebook group. So feel free to write me, sandrachamplain at gmail.com, and I will be able to connect you with the right group or several of them. But Mary Beth, it's time for us to uh, say our final words. Um, <laughs> as I, I knew it would go by fast, but yeah, do you have any a couple of final words you want to share, and then I will uh, close out the one of the interview. Yeah, one of one of one of the little you know I have all these different little axioms and things and little little um, you know affirmations. I mean, William, William, some of William's affirmations are things like. You know, Irene, Irene, you and I are together. Irene, we are in love. I know you're right here. You know, he constantly would reassure himself that way. And in his book, he has all of them listed. So you can go and read his book for free. But one of the little sayings I love that I often say to myself that I picked up in some little wacky book that mm-hmm. actually talked to you about how you can prepare a body for death yourself, which I wasn't <laughs> intending to do. Yeah. But, but I had a little quote in the beginning of the book, and it said, Mary Meet. M-E-R-R-Y, marry, meet, and marry, part, and marry, meet again. Oh. And that's, for me, that sums up life. Marry, meet, marry, part, marry, meet again. I met Paul when I was a teenager. We parted ways. I met him again when I was adult, an adult. We came together for a full, fabulous relationship. You know, we parted in a certain way when he took off for the flip side, and we will meet again. And that's true for everyone. Oh, I so love I love it. that. It's, it's just it's just so buoyant and happy and che- I like cheerful things. Marry me and marry part and marry meet again. And Sandra, I will marry meet again with you. We're going to marry meet very soon because it's less than a month away to the <laughs> afterlife symposium. And for our yes. listener, not too late to sign up. There's still some spots left. Uh, you can go to afterlifesymposium.org to find out more. Also on the website, they're going to live stream some of the speakers not all there's about 50 speakers that will be there so it'll be a big 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 event um and yeah and i will probably do some live streams from the event to introduce you to some of the speakers face to face i think that's going to be exciting as a reminder our home base yeah i'm excited is we don't die radio there's a lot of freebies there, including my free audio called How to Survive Grief. I've got a PDF file called 19 Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife. And although it says you'll get several chapters from my book, We Don't Die, it's actually the whole book in PDF form. <gasps> yes, I know. And as a <laughs> reminder, just below this episode, I have included uh, the links to the Nanji tapes, also to William Murray's blog and to your Facebook group, Love Afterlife, to make it easy for people. And if you're not listening on YouTube, you can easily go to, just type in We Don't Die Radio 271 and, and you'll find this episode. So Mary Beth, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't wait to meet you. And uh, it's all good. We're, we're really, it was, it was a great time. It was a great time. Definitely. And to come to the symposium, there's so much I didn't even get to. I have like reads of stuff know. to share. So yeah, there will be more. Yeah. And you will be speaking on Friday, September 14th, 1145 to 1230. I think I'm actually speaking at 230 that very same day. Yes. I have, I, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to see you. 
Oh, you're so great. Well, thank you to our (laughs) listener also for being with us for this interview, for many interviews, however many you listen to. Thank you. Your life is important. I wish we had all the answers. I don't have the answer for why grief has to hurt so much or why we have some of the struggles, but I do know, and Mary Beth is just a testament to this, is that sometimes grief can crack you wide open and actually allow the spiritual side of yourself to grow. Um, Not only looking for answers, but for like who you are and what your life is for. And I am taking more than anything away from this episode, not to wait for things to happen, but make things happen. Be proactive. Give your loved ones who are in the spirit world a sign from you to them. And I love that and talk to them as if they're still here because they are. Pour them a cup of coffee. You don't necessarily need to buy a gift, but present them to something you would give to them. Keep that relationship alive from your point of view. And I think you'll be mystified at the signs that end up coming through. So with that, this is Sandra Champlain. and I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe with all my heart that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. So thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.